Hello, and welcome to another Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderbeer. 91-year-old Joan Spelter of Schenectady is a licensed counselor still in private practice. She's also the mother of five very successful and accomplished children. And all of this would be impressive enough, but it is even more so when you realize that for many decades, Joan has suffered from an emotional disorder that at one point made it nearly impossible for her to function. She talks with me about how her life has turned from a living nightmare to a life that is beyond her wildest dreams, and how she got there through faith, recovery, and a lot of hard work. Listen as this matriarch shares her wisdom with us all. Joan, I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about your childhood. Your childhood was not easy, and I'm wondering if you can can talk to us a little bit about what growing up for you was like. Well, uh, if we talk about my childhood from the time I was, you know, real school till I was about 14, maybe 15, um, it was pretty rough because I was an only child and my mother happened to be struck with the disease of alcoholism. And, and therefore, my home life was constantly disrupted. I lost my father when I was five years old. He died of a heart attack at 40. And so from then on, my mother was certainly not in a very good frame of mind. And she was searching for someone else and she found them. But however, he was not certainly a person that, that was, he was an alcoholic as well. So my life at home was pretty rough. My mother and father, stepfather were constantly fighting and it was just not a very happy existence, you mm, know. Mm. But again... Um, the good Lord always gave me something to, to kind of take away the pain. And, and when I was about seven years old, my father's brother decided to send me away to camp, a Catholic camp, for two months, July and August, every year. Mm. And, and it was the most wonderful, wonderful thing that could have ever happened. And so I did that for 10 years, actually. I went away for two months every year. And that was your that was your oasis that got you through the oh, other ten months. And we had morning mass every day. We had, you know, it was and and the most lovely people I met there, wonderful girls from some, you know, some of them too had their struggles, but they were just beautiful people. And I just was surrounded by just a wonderful environment, you know, at that time in the summer. I had to, of course, leave there at the end of August and go back home. Oh. But you know, and that went on until I was as I said, older when I took up with a girlfriend and was able to begin to go over to her house and mm. spend time with her family. And her mother was so wonderful. She accepted me and her brothers. And we just had, I could go there. That was my oasis from everything. When things got rough, I would go over to her house. And laughter, there was a lot of laughter and oh. a lot of faith in Jesus there that really, really, really was healing in my life, you know? Well, it sounds too like starting at a young age, maybe early high school, you began the practice of going to mass every day. I did. I did. Wow. We went to, Eileen and I would meet in the morning. We had 7.15 mass at church and we go to mass before we left for school. And um, <clears throat> it was uh, a practice. Now, 
I don't know what kind of, you know, if I really concentrated on what I was doing. Who knows? I don't even know. But I did go to Mass every day. And it was, to me, a very important part of my life, you know. However, at the same time, when we were on our way to high school, we started playing hooky from school, going to Times Square. All, all the great movie stars that used to appear on Broadway, right? At the Paramount, Frank Sinatra and everybody. Oh. So, I mean, it was hard to resist because our high school was in Manhattan. And we, we used to pass 42nd Street, the station, every day. Oh. And so every now and again, we'd just get up and get off the train and go it, to the movies. It was too tempting not to it get off that train. <laughs> it was. And, and when I look upon it, I'll tell you, we used to go over that a lot, laughing about some of the stuff we did, you know. Oh. I mean, I guess it wasn't really that nice, but to us, it was really, Eileen, too, came from a home where she lost her father when she was young. Mm. So, I mean, she, she, too, had her own struggles, you know. Yeah. But she was a dear, dear friend and a very beautiful woman, you know. <clears throat> now, did you make a decision that you wanted to meet uh a good Christian man and wanted to arrange your life that way? Or was meeting your husband more of just a fluke? Did you make a decision to be in the right place to meet? Oh, I did. Yes. You did. I did. Yeah. Um, my girlfriend's after Eileen, Eileen left and went in the convent when she was 18 and, uh, then came back out and ended up in the late Catholic lay group. However, during the time when she was away, her mother and I would go over to New York to a, a church to mass there, and we'd attend a, a novena to the infinite praying. And, mm. and I, I, I remember writing out the slip every every few weeks, you know, and and putting it back into this novena, and and then it, I would always put on it. I want to meet a good Catholic husband, one who can get me to heaven and whom I can get to heaven. Oh. And, and, you know, it was interesting when uh, I finally did meet my husband, which I, that's another part of the story, but he told me he loved me the first time in that church. Wow. Yes. Yeah. But he said, I want to tell you before the Blessed Sacrament that I love you, you know? Wow. And that was really powerful, you know? So God was definitely always such an intricate part of my life, you know? taking wow. part in everything that I did. There was always like, there was the trial and the cross, but then there was this wonderful, you know, inter intercession of the Lord, you know, wow. that brought with it healing and peace, you know, it was a wonderful thing. Really. How wonderful. Well, now mm. his name, his name is Bill Horgan and, and right. you married him. Yes. And although I met him in this Catholic lay group, he was, in fact, that's why I joined because my girlfriend said there were holy boys in this group. Holy and boys. So, <laughs> holy boys. Because so I, I wasn't interested in joining. And then I thought, gee, maybe I ought to. I was about, I think, 19 or 20 at the time. And so I joined. And this was a beautiful group founded by a Vincentian priest. And we used to meet twice a month at a convent that the nuns had. And we would have a meditation by the priest and then we would discuss the meditation you know and then we got involved in missionary work over on welfare island in in new york and visited the the sick poor and and it was a it was really a beautiful thing wow. and that was where i began to meet my husband you know and, and got to know him there you know because he was doing the same thing you know now from the sounds of things god brought you together 
But your first years of marriage certainly were not what people would call easy. Oh no! What was oh, no, what was that early time of marriage like? What well, were the struggles that you faced? Because I too had the Cinderella complex, you know. I thought I'd get married and live happily ever after. Right? Mm. That's that's kind of that naive way we always looked at life at those days. Mm. And um, so when I got married to him, the reason we got married the date time when we did was because his mother was in the hospital. She had had a stroke and he needed someone to take care of her. Mm. And so we were planning to get married, but not that soon. Mm. So we got married and then we only took a weekend honeymoon, came home and right away, his mother was there and I had to care for her. She was, she could walk, but she was paralyzed on one side, you know, mm. she would drag her leg and she'd walk with a cane. She couldn't talk. She didn't have, she could just kind of shake her head. She could understand everything, you know, mm. but she couldn't express it. So anyway, you know, I was the klutziest girl because my mother, of course, never trained me in how to keep house or how to do anything. I had no, no, or domestic skills to speak of, you know. <laughs> and so, I mean, I had to learn everything from the ground up. And, of course, whoever lived with me had to put up with that, too. <laughs> so, anyway, as it was, I was working, uh, trying to, of course, be a good daughter-in-law. And But I, I would, if I would forget toast for her in the morning, she would take it seriously. And then she would go on a hunger strike. And she wouldn't want to eat or take anything from me. Wow. And, and Bill would have to intercede. And it was always something like that till uh finally and then i got pregnant right away with my daughter mary and my husband of course was working at that time i think he was working late he'd come home at 9 30 at night so you know all that romantic stuff about marriage forget it that was cool. <laughs> i mean this was just hard hard work and we even had a washing machine that had a ringer yeah. And I had never used one of those, so I wouldn't use it. I used to wash the clothes in the bathtub, making life just a little easier, right, for myself. Wow. So it was crazy. But anyway, um, at one point, my mother-in-law ended up in the uh, in the hospital because of one of these hunger strikes. And, and so I made up my mind, I'm going to convince this woman that I love her. So I decided that every single day, I was, as I said, I was pregnant with my daughter, I would go on the trolley over the bridge, go down onto Welfare Island and go to the hospital there and visit her, which I did every single day from August till my daughter was born in December, you know? Wow. And I would bring her a, a house dress and sit and, and talk with her for an hour maybe, you know? And and that's how I, and I, I was convinced that if nothing, if that didn't work, nothing would work, you know? Yeah. And, and so um, when my daughter was born, my mother was in the hospital. She had had a hemorrhage and she was in the hospital. And so there was two hospitals on Welfare Island by Bill had a visit and then me in another hospital where my daughter was born so it was it was wild oh. and my stepfather of course he's in between there causing kind of he all he was worried about was putting up the christmas tree <laughs> and my husband that was the last thing he had on his mind you know oh. so anyway it was a wild time and then right after that my stepfather took sick and he that was like uh he died in april of that 
next year. And, and then the following year, my mother took sick and died in March of the following year. And then the following year, in February, my mother-in-law died on a wedding anniversary, a third wedding anniversary. I can't so imagine. It's such a combination of uh, hardship and feelings of well, rejection. I, and my, I was expecting my third child when she died. Oh. I had my daughter Joan was born uh, in 57, and then my mother died in uh, 58, and then uh, Bernadette was born in 58. She was born in July. So, I mean, it was like, and then I had an uncle who I loved dearly, like a father who lived in New Jersey with my cousin, who I loved dearly. And they decided to move to Ohio. Wow. Well, that was like total abandonment. I had nobody then, nobody. Because oh. I didn't have any brothers or sisters. I had no other relatives. So I was really pretty much alone, you know. It's, so it, it was something. I can't imagine. So you, it's it's an unbelievable combination of things for a young woman. And like yeah. you said, your support had always been from from the church and from faith. It wasn't right. it wasn't easy to depend on family um, no. for for support. So these things start to pile up, and they and right. they pile up and up and up. And then how did that start to show up in you in ways that were getting to be really difficult? Yeah, not good. I, well, I first I started having anxiety attacks, you know, and that would be, leave me anxious and fearful. And I remember the, the first time I noticed that somebody told me something about cancer, and I thought I thought I had it, you know. I started thinking, oh gee, I bet I got that, you know. And then I, I that would just build up, like I'd start, and then I start thinking we we lost everybody eleven months apart. I wonder who's going to be next. And then I thought, well, maybe it'll be me. I'm not a good mother. I don't do all the things I should be doing for my family, you know. I started finding fault with everything I did. And then uh, from there, it just went on. Finally, I said to a friend of mine, you know, I think I'm, uh, I don't know what's going on. I was telling her the story. And she said, you better watch out. You might have a nervous breakdown. Oh. Well, that's all she had to say, you know. Then I started getting, what if I harm my children? What if I harm myself? What if I, and then I started fearing knives and sharp objects. And it just it just went on and on and on like that. I was like that, honestly, for two years. Oh. And during that period, I didn't even tell my husband half the stuff because I was afraid he'd put me in the hospital, you know. Yeah. I went to priests for help, but uh, they didn't have the skill. They did not know how to help me, you know. They, they would do what they thought was right, but in the end, it was... They would tell me, they get mad at me, you know. Mm. You better correct, control your thinking. That's not good. That, blah, blah, blah. Well, anyway, it just added to my guilt. Mm. And it was like I had always had a close, I, what I felt was a close relationship with the Lord. And then all of a sudden, I felt like every time I thought about God, I felt guilty. I had this overwhelming guilt because of how I, my thoughts. And so I would say, God, I know you're there, but I, I can't think about you, you know. Yeah. I know you're there. So I started saying novenas, and my main novena was to the Sacred Heart. And I, I kept, we kept, uh, I had the family dedicated to the Sacred Heart. And anyway, after about two years, and I wouldn't go to a psychiatrist. I was scared to death of psychiatrists. Mm. Uh, I, I heard about a priest. Don't even ask where I heard it. I can't even remember. Over at St. Francis of Assisi in Manhattan, who was a psychologist. Mm. So I called up and made an appointment. I went to him, 
And he, I only saw him once. And he told me, he said, you have an anxiety neurosis. You need to give up the rhythm method because we were practicing the rhythm method. Mm. And he said, you need to go to a program that meets here twice a week called recovery. Mm. And, well, that's the story of what happened in my life. I started going to recovery. It meant, uh, that's another part of my story, because I had to get a babysitter because there was nobody to watch the babies at night. Mm. My husband came home late. I had to get a babysitter. I had to leave the house about 7.15, go on the elevated train into Manhattan, which mm. took about 20, 25 minutes, get off, go to the church, go to the meeting at 8 o'clock, come out about 10 o'clock, go to a, 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 what we call mutual aid at a cafeteria and talk with everybody after the meeting, picking their brain about everything, you know, mm. and then leave at 11 to make an 11.03 train home and walk home scared to death from the train wow. to my house because I was all alone. I did that twice a week. Wow. And because the first meeting I went to, the leader said, before recovery, I had the fear of this, of that, naming all my fears. And I thought, she said before. That means she's over them. Ah. If she got over it through this method, then I can. I can get over it. I know I can. But I knew I'd have to put in a heck of a lot of work. Mm. And and I remember working the program for a while. And and finally, one day on a subway train, I was reading the, the ads when all of a sudden it dawned on me for five minutes, I hadn't had my obsessive fears. Mm. And I thought, I remember thinking, I'm getting well. I'm getting well. I was five days, five, if I could be five minutes without him, I could be 10 minutes without him. And honestly, Scott, that's how I got well. Five minutes at a time. Joan, this is so helpful for people. This is so yeah. helpful. Let's let's take some of the things that you just said and talk about them a little bit because I think there, right. are, there might be some people listening to this right now who <clears> cannot <throat> believe there's someone who understands because you're describing what their experience is. Sure. And they can't believe it. So let's so one of the things that you're saying that sounds really important is for several years when you say you had 5 minutes looking at the ads and you realized I I didn't have my obsession for these 5 minutes. It's really important for people to hear every waking minute for those years before that you were thinking about these fears. Oh, the fears just came on, yes. Because what what I learned in recovery was that temper it, it produces tenseness and then tenseness produces these symptoms. Mm. So what I had to learn was how to give up the self-blame, the self-pity, the self-disgust, which was hard because I had built up a, a belief system around it. And, and I didn't have so much the angry temper, which would have been temperate fate, you know, temperate my husband and all. Mm. I didn't have that too much, but I did have the fearful temper, which is that self-pity, the self-blame that brings the lowered feelings, the depression, you know, ah. and and that's that's what I was working on <clears throat> all the time. I'm not wrong. Excuse me, Scott. I gotta mm. take a sip of water. Certainly, certainly. <clears throat> I'm not wrong. The outer environment isn't wrong. I'm not wrong. The outer environment isn't wrong. And then we learn to give ourselves a mental pat on the back. Yes. That's good. That's good. Every time I did that, you know. Wow. So I kept it simple, even though I had a lot of tools to use. But I didn't. I studied the books that Dr. Lowe gave us, and I I made myself go to work on this thing because that was my lifeline. I, I knew this was how I'm going to get. There was no medication then. 
There was no, you know, tranquilizers. There wasn't anything. So this group, this group still exists to this day. It was founded by a Dr. Lowe and the name of it is Recovery International. That's right. So you would tell people if someone right now is, is just in awe of what you're saying because it, it expresses what they're feeling in their life, you would suggest go to the internet and look up Recovery International right now. There's probably a group near them. Yes. Recoveryinternational.org. Got it. Not dot com. It's dot org. Got it. And if you get that, you'll get the whole website, and it lists all the meetings throughout the country, throughout the actually throughout the world. There's groups all over, and uh, and then they would get all the information there that they needed. There's even phone meetings. So if they didn't want to attend a meeting locally or somewhere, because in the beginning a lot of people have stigma. They're embarrassed, you know. Yeah. And 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 now there are Zoom meetings. Uh, for instance, I lead two Zoom meetings every week. Wow. And, and uh, yeah, and and they're wonderful. We, in fact, my group, we used to go to a church. They don't want to go back to the church. They want to stay on the Zoom meetings. Wow. Because they're really nice. I mean, you don't have to leave the house. You know, it's just comfortable. You know. It is. It is. And and so it works out really well. In fact, I at my group now, I have someone from Florida who used to be in my group up here, moved to Florida, and really missed us, but couldn't come. You know, to the meeting. Now he can come because yeah. of the Zoom. So I see him every uh, two times a week now. Anyway, that's that's where where they get the information would be on the website, you know? Wonderful. Joan, yeah. a couple other things I'd like to go into just a little bit, if you would. I, sure. I, you said, one of the things you said is something that I think we hear from people quite often who are in recovery from some sort of mental, emotional, or physical um, ailment. And that is, you said, I knew it would be a heck of a lot of work. I, I knew... Talk to me about what you mean when someone is recovering from an emotional disorder. What do you mean by work? That might be a well, new concept for yeah, people. That, you, that's a good question, Scott, because first of all, I learned in recovery that my symptoms were extremely distressing, but they were utterly harmless. Mm. Nothing was going to happen to me because of these symptoms, because mm. of these thoughts or feelings. They were the harmless expression of a nervous imbalance. Wow. Now, I had to be convinced of that, of course, because I didn't believe it, of course, when I came into the program, you know. Mm. I was frightened to death. But, you know, I, I can tell you I've been in the program 60 years, and this is true. There is no danger, no danger whatsoever. Wow. And so, uh, but that, it takes a while. Now, beliefs are stubborn and they're obstinate and they take practice. So you're yes. going to try and fail, try and fail, try and fail till eventually you have trial and success. Yeah. Now, that's why, even though there's a book available, it's not enough. The meetings are critical. Mm. You need to be attending meetings. And I would recommend one to two meetings a week. Mm. If you can go to two, great. The more, the better, especially mm. in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Now, like I said, we have other phone meetings you can attend from the website. You can learn about them. But anyway, the important thing is that you're exposed to hearing other people speak about the same issues that you're dealing with, you know, yeah. and see that they're getting help and they're getting better. That's, and that's what gives you hope then, you know? That's fantastic. That's yeah. fantastic. And, and the, the spotting tools in recovery are beautiful. Dr. Lowe has a, a, 
preponderance of spotting tools. That means phrases that we change the, the way we think now to new a new way of thinking. This is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. So you're changing your thinking. You read, but you needed to know how do I change it? What do I say now? I don't know what to say, right? Yeah. So. so but he gives you the tools. He gives you, for instance, there's no right or wrong in the trivialities of everyday life. Mm. Uh, excuse and don't accuse. Mm. Endorse yourself. Uh, spot your pa- impatience. We are the impatient patient. Uh. You know, uh, practice humility instead of self-importance. Uh. And, uh, you know, and anyway, I could go on and on because there's just an... I know tons of spotting principles, but if you don't need them all, you only need one or two of them every day to help you get through a, a situation. For instance, calm begets calm, mm. temper begets temper. Mm. So if I can just stay calm, right, not mm. attach fear or danger to things. Mm. So it's it's an excellent program, Scott. I mean, you know, you got all my favorite topics. So. I well, I love it. I love hearing you. I love the passion with which you speak about it because it gave you your life back. Oh, it did. It, it did. I wouldn't have been getting through my husband's illnesses and all that he went through and just everything in our lives that took place, you know? Well, one more thing, one more thing I'd like to ask before we move on, because I think one of the things that is important for people to know is you are a, you're at this point in your life, it's great to speak with you looking backwards at the big picture because you you finding recovery international did not mean that life was happily ever after it didn't take away problems it gave you tools it didn't stop life from being challenging but and there's a lot more to come but before we go there one more question because i think you brought up something very beautiful and important there are many people who have left their church because they made an appointment with a priest that wound up being disappointing for them. Yes. And yes. you said something really powerful. Priests are very capable of disappointing someone in in a in a one-on-one setting, partially because people may expect that because someone is a priest, they are an expert at all things. Right, right. And exactly. you were saying those priests didn't have the skills in that area. What That's would you right. First question is, what would you say to someone who has made an appointment with a priest, maybe it took a lot of courage to make it, and they made the appointment, and then the advice they got from the priest didn't resonate or made them feel perhaps maybe even a little guilty, or it was just very clear it wasn't helpful. What would you suggest they do? Because many folks at that point leave the church and leave the practice of their faith, which makes their life even harder. It does. It does. One of the things I want to say is that we're not dealing with a spiritual problem here. Mm. Okay, we're dealing with a mental illness, just like a physical illness. Mm. If you had a broken arm, you wouldn't go to Father John and say, Father John, could you fix my broken arm? You know, because you knew that you need a doctor. You need an orthopedic doctor to take care of this problem. Well, the same thing is true of mental illness. Uh, And people don't want to even use that term. But in a sense, this is what it is. Mm. And it means that we have an imbalance. That's all it means. Mm-hmm. I have a nervous imbalance, and I have to restore the balance, and I need help with it. I need help by people trained to help me with it, mm. and I don't. I can't put that burden on a priest or my husband or my family or anyone. 
Yes. That this is strictly, and or, or all these self-help books that we end up buying thinking, oh, well, I'll buy a self-help book and that'll get me well, you know? Yeah. That's not doing it. I'm sorry to say, you have to bear discomfort to gain comfort. It oh, doesn't wow. come easy. Yes. You have to bear the discomfort. But when you gain the comfort, it is worth every bit of effort you put into it, you know? Those are powerful words. You're helping me right now just to hear that. You have to be willing to bear discomfort to move through it to get to the comfort. Exactly. Oh, and exactly. Is, is that what you mean when you say do the work? That's related to doing the work, isn't it? Because if, it you, if you can't bear the discomfort, you will give up, but you won't yes. heal. And again, that's why the group is so important. Yeah. Because the group gives you the the will to keep bearing that discomfort. And and then you start seeing when people do, because we give examples at the meeting. Now, the meeting has four, this, the example part has four parts. The situation, how I worked myself up, and then how I applied the recovery method, and what how I would have acted before recovery. Yeah. So the person, when they hear an example, hears those four parts, and they see how this person has grown. Mm. Now, when they came into the program, for instance, if I give an example today, I, I, I can say before I came this recovery, I would have had these symptoms and these symptoms and these, you know, I could have listed a whole ton. Mm. But I don't have them anymore. And now yeah. people hear that and they go, oh my gosh, because you're so embarrassed to tell anybody about this. Yes. You think you're always the only person that feels like this. Yes. Nobody else knows how I feel, you know? Yeah. But when you find out, you're not alone. And there's people getting well. Oh. And, and that's exactly what I had to find out. But it took work. And the work also involves studying the, the writings of Dr. Lowe. Yes. We have two books that we use, Mental Health Through Will Training and Manage Your Fear, Manage Your Anger. Mm. Those two books contain everything you need for the program. Wow. And when I couldn't attend the meeting, because when I got pregnant, I did get pregnant with my children while I was going early, in the early days. Mm. And when I did, my husband couldn't watch the newborns when they were born. So I had to stay home and I would start really studying the literature, you know? Mm. And that was the best thing I ever did. And uh, I would have to go, because I had no memory. I had no memory. I was obsessing, mm. obsessing all the time. So I had to say things over and over to myself, you know? Yeah. But then then it would come. So go ahead, honey. Well, I think I'm taking No, I love time. what you're saying because you know what you're saying there that I think is also helpful that I want to put an exclamation mark next to for people is – when you were when you had two additional newborns and you weren't able to go to meetings some people would say well now i can't work the program and you said no i will find a way i will i'm going to turn to literature when i can go to meetings i go to meetings and i but when i can't go to meetings i don't abandon the program i don't leave my path i find a way to stay connected and we have also the five-minute phone call, which is excellent, where we call a, a, mem a veteran member of the group, and we give an example over the phone, and then mm. they spot for us. They they help us like they would at a meeting. Wow. So that's a major help. And wow. I use that a lot. I did that a lot during that period, you know? Do you know one of the things yeah. that just blows my mind, too, even though, can you believe this is all free for the taking? Yeah. Isn't free. it amazing? Free will offering. And, and we've had a very hard time in, in convincing professionals to send people to us over the years, you know. 
And of course, my my feeling is we could work really well with a professional, you know. Yeah. That when when if they have the patient's best interest at heart, when the patient uses up their time with them, they or even while they're going to them, if they sent them to us, the patient would be better able to work with the professional. Yeah. Because we never tell them not to go to the professional. Yeah. The professional, they have to listen to them, you know. Yeah. We 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 know we're a lay organization, you know. Oh, it's just, it's remarkable. So, so thank you for, thank you for taking the time with that, because I think this will be a part of our conversation that I'll bet you there's people that go back and listen to it again and again, because it's going to give them the courage and the encouragement they need to make the step that they need to make. So, oh yeah, I hope so. Oh, I hope, I so, hope so too. So now let's, this is a perfect spot to move on because now it's time to say you were given your first set of tools Mm-hmm. And life kept moving on, and and right. and life went through some major changes in this next chapter because you left the city. You were a city girl through and through. Right. Talk to me about how that changed. What was the circumstance that brought you upstate? Well, <coughs> excuse me. I'm sorry. Just one second. <coughs> My husband came home one day and said that he had been offered a job upstate. Actually, he could have even gone into Canada, but he was going to be selling uh, for Moody's Investor Service, mm. uh, their, their books at that time. I mean, now it would have been on a computer, mm-hmm. but this was back, you know, in 1968, mm. so <clears throat> it was quite a long time ago. Anyway, I immediately said yes, because we had always prayed that God would help us get out, because we had a, a debt we owed, a, we had a loan that we took out when we got married, mm. and we still had it. You know, we had five children, and we were just like, you know, we were struggling bad. We did own the house that we lived in. We were paying, of course, the mortgage on it. And my mother had left us enough money for us to buy that house, $1,500, I think it was, or $2,500 we put down. And so, anyway, um, what happened was we came upstate, and and I, I had laid a fleece. You want me to tell the part about that where I laid a fleece before the Lord? I think that's fascinating because it actually there is a biblical there's a biblical background to this, right? There is, there is. Anyway, I laid this fleece before the Lord. I said, Lord, I want a house uh, under twenty thousand with five bedrooms. Well, you know, Imagine. that was like a joke. Everybody was kind of laughing at me, and I said, "No, that's what we—that's what we could afford. A house under twenty thousand, you know, with five bedrooms." So anyway, we came up, and we have friends in Nisqually here, and so we stayed with them at first, and then we went around with this a woman from Capitol Homes up here, and she took us to several homes over near the park, and. But their homes were big old houses with a lot of rooms in them. I did not like them at all. They were in the 30,000s and that. And I said, no, no, we mm. just couldn't afford that. So anyway, by Sunday, we had kind of given up. We said, well, looks like we're not going to find anything now. So we went back to their house. And about an hour later, we get a phone call. And it's from the real estate woman. And she said, well, I have a house that I didn't show you that we just got put on the market and it's owned by seal test and they priced it to sell so if you want to come over you know i'll show it to you so we came over and when i first looked at the house it was looked like a cape cod and i thought well gee this don't look too big you know so we came in and it turned out this house had five bedrooms and only one bathroom though <laughs> mm. but five bedrooms 
So anyway, she takes us all through the house, and then she takes us down through the basement and out the back door. Now, when we went out the back door, Henry, my husband, Bill, and I, we could not believe our eyes. There was this gorgeous property. I mean, I mean gorgeous. It is. I mean, if you could see it now, you would just, you wouldn't believe it, Scott. It's beautiful. Aww. And, and it, it's like, at that time, it was four lots. Four lots. And the house was on one, and then there was another lot for the garage and so on. And anyway, nowadays, it's three lots. They combined two of them for the house and the garage, you know? Mm. So anyway, when we went in the house, I said to the girl, wait a minute now. I said, well, how much is this, you know? Oh, she said, this is sixteen nine. <laughs> so I said, sixteen nine. Well, Bill and I looked at each other, you know? So anyway, we went back to the friend's house, and in five minutes, we, we made up our mind. We called the girl and said, we're going to take the house. So she said, oh, I forgot. I made a mistake. It's 16-5. Oh, my So we got this God. house for 16-5. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. And it was just unbelievable. Well, anyway, that was the start. And, of course, that didn't mean everything was – we lived happily ever after. Mm. We got this house. And then we were all, of course, all excited. The kids, of course, and myself. And then my husband took sick. Oh. He was in the hospital. He had pancreatitis, which is a very serious, serious disease. And he was on the critical list. Mm. And the real estate woman was asking them to hold the house for us because she said, we're a wonderful family with five children. We would really love this house and this and that. So they put off trying to sell it to somebody else, you know. So then uh, finally we got worried it was a closing. So I brought the papers into the hospital for my husband to sign. I was a nervous wreck mm. that he wouldn't be able to even sign it, mm. but he did. And then my oldest girl who was in about, I think, 13, she and I took the bus up to Schenectady because we didn't even have a car then. Mm. And we came up to Schenectady and we, we signed the closing. I saw the closing papers here. Wow. So the house was now ours, all right? So now Bill finally comes out of the hospital, <clears throat> and he has the gout. Mm. And then it's the day to move, all right? So my friends from up here came down, took the children in their car, and they took all the dirty wash I put through in the trunk and, and went, up, went up towards Schenectady. Bill and I were getting ready to, to leave when the phone rang, and the movers said, oh, we just went out on strike. You know? Oh, my. Yeah, we're, we're, and I'm thinking, oh, they're going to solve it right away. You know, they're going to. But they said, yeah, well, we're out. So we waited a little while and we didn't get any word that they had solved it. So then Bill and I took whatever suitcases we had and threw all the kids' clothes and stuff and our clothes in it as much as we could. And now you got to remember, Bill is limping. He can't hardly walk with the foot that has the gout. Wow. So we go over to the Port of Authority and we were a sight. I'm pushing the, the bags ahead with my foot. He's walking with the cane, limping. Oh. And we get on the bus, and it's snowing. It's March 1st. It's snowing. The wind's blowing. The bus is shaking. I said to Bill, you think God's trying to tell us something? <laughs> <clears throat> so anyway, that's how we started out. And the, the strike lasted for six weeks. So we we lived here in Schenectady with, on cots. 
and, and, and sleeping bags. And we sat on metal chairs that Chris gave us. And he Joan, us for, for those who've lost track, you had five children at this point. Oh, yeah, we had five. I had two more after I joined recovery. Isn't it amazing? I mean, this is a, this is a real trial. <laughs> but my kids were my joy, though, Scott. Uh, I got to tell you. Uh, they, they were always the joy of my life to this very day, of yeah. course. But they, they are beautiful. I am blessed mm. with five beautiful gems. They mm. are beautiful. So anyway, uh, as it turned out, though, we were here for six weeks. And I can still remember the day they called and said they were, this, the, the, the strike was settled and they were on their way. Then we got another phone call. I can still remember Mary Teresa coming out and saying, Ma, the, the, the movers are on the line. So I came in and they said, oh, our truck broke down on the Long Island Expressway. Oh. I said, and they said, I don't think, this was like Palm Sunday, I remember. They said, I don't know if we can make it. I said, you better make it. We have waited six weeks for this, this stuff. We will be here whenever you get that truck ready. I don't care if you get here at two in the morning. We'll be here. Oh. And that's what happened. They arrived at about one o'clock in the morning and unloaded the truck. Oh. And all my kids ran to sit on the couch because they've been sitting on metal chairs for six <laughs> weeks. It was something else. <laughs> so anyway, that was the inauspicious you know, beginning of our life schenectady but otherwise the kids were in a great school i loved the school i loved everything about it mm. I, I really loved the community here uh, and i of course loved the house you know yeah. and so we were very it was a blessing and everything went along fine for about maybe two years or so and then bill was working of course he's traveling he's going every day he goes went away for a week and then be home on the weekend. Then he'd go away for another week and then be home on the weekend. Then he'd be home a week. Then he'd go, now you'd use the same cycle. So we didn't see a lot of him. Mm. He wasn't really here a lot. But anyway, <clears throat> everything worked out. Now we had no car. He had to learn how to drive, wow. which he did. And he finally got a car from the company, but he had to use the car. <laughs> and then I finally learned how to drive, but that took a while. But it took a while for us to get a car, you know. We just didn't have the money, you know. We couldn't do it. And uh, I used to walk up to the price shop over the A&P at that time mm. with my little shopping cart, you know, mm. and get my, my food. But anyway, we managed, and everything went really well. Mm. And uh, But then he started getting sick. Mm. And he had, he had a, a slip disc and had to be had surgery. Mm. Then he got over that, and then he had a, had cancer of the kidney, and he had to have that removed. Mm. Then then he um, he had a, he slipped and fell across the street and it cracked his head. Was knocked unconscious, and that was Christmas Eve. He spent Christmas Eve in the hospital. Came home Christmas Day, and then five months later had a grand mal seizure. And, and then, I mean, it just went like that. You know, these are a few years in between with everything. But then it got to the point where he had a pain in his leg. And when they got examined, he had cancer of the bone. Oh. So that was the beginning of the end, you know. And uh, he died at the age of 48. He was very young. Are you not in awe of this woman? Can you imagine how far she's come from that crippling time in her 20s to where she is 
in the story at this point? Now remember, she's only in her 40s. She still has more than half of her life to come. But we're leaving her off as a widow with five teenagers at home. Where does the story go next? Well, I can promise you some of the very best, most inspiring parts of Joan Spelter's life are still to come. So please join us next week as we continue to bask in the wisdom of this matriarch and all that her life has to teach us. God bless you.